0: Perfect Church. I located it on my phone this morning. Go to Google Maps and you type in The Perfect Church and it will take you to this church in Atlanta, Georgia called The Perfect Church. Isn't that great? It's a perfect one. Someone named it The Perfect Church. And the old joke, you guys know the old joke, right? If you find a perfect church, don't go there because it won't be perfect anymore. So if you go to Atlanta, don't go to this church. It won't be perfect anymore. Uh, that's the reality. There is no perfect church. Uh, but the Antioch church that we're going to study in the book of Acts today is definitely one that sets a good example for other churches, one that sets a good example for us. If you, you remember, our vision as a church is to have uh, deep roots in the Word of God, and, and a church that, because of its deep roots in the Word of God, is bearing fruit for God's glory. A tree that has deep roots and is bearing fruit is a tree that is stable, it is healthy, it's vibrant, it's a refreshing tree. To me, a, a, a healthy fruit tree is an Edenic, you know, like the Garden of Eden, it's an Edenic picture of Shalom. Peace and and prosperity and life and refreshment. And and today in the book of Acts, it's a good time to remind us of that vision because the church in Antioch reminds me of this. They're they're grounded in the Word of God and they're bearing fruit. They're a generous church. It's it's really neat. And God is moving among among this church in Antioch. We're going to learn from this, this church some operational principles for us, if we're going to see God move and continue to move in our church as well. So look at 11, chapter 11, verse 19. It says, So then those who were scattered uh, because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them... Some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number of people uh, believed and turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. So the first thing we see in our outline is the Gentile expansion, the Gentile Expansion. The last two weeks, the author Luke, if you haven't been here, the last two weeks, the author Luke has shown us how God divinely orchestrated this acceptance of the Gentiles. He made it indisputable that he has accepted the Gentiles in the church. They're part of the church, and he did that, if you remember, through a vision to Peter, the Apostle Peter, and to Cornelius, a Roman centurion Gentile. And uh, he made their reception of the Spirit undeniable. There was external manifestations of that. And this is a pretty fresh reality for the Jews uh, who are used to avoiding Gentiles. They've been reared in tradition and things, Jewish tradition, to avoid Gentiles. Now, it wasn't in God's law we talked about that. They were to reach out to the Gentiles and show them God, but they were avoiding the Gentiles. Uh, And... uh, in verse 19, Luke rewinds us to the narrative of that we that we encountered in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Remember, a, a persecution began, starting with uh, with the martyr, martyrdom of Stephen. He was the first martyr, and as a result of that, uh, persecution uh, increased greatly, and the church in Jerusalem was scattered, and they went out all over the place, mainly to the north, and uh, that's where Antioch is. And Luke tells us that most of the Jewish believers who spread out from Jerusalem, they only spread the word to other Jewish communities that were abroad. Okay, So due to an exile to Babylon and Assyria, uh, hundreds of years earlier, there were Jewish communities around the world, kind of like today. Jewish communities in Las Vegas, in New York, wherever you go in the world, there's a Jewish community there. It's called the diaspora. They've been spread. And so in the end days, obviously, they'll be regathered. And uh, we're not going to get into that. But um, these Jews it, that scattered in per, in, 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 uh, due to the, the persecution of Stephen, they went to the north. To this Antioch Jewish community, and they were only speaking to the Jews alone. They naturally didn't reach out beyond the Jews. Isn't that what you? Isn't that what we do too? I mean, Naturally, we just hang out with other believers. We t- we typically tend to do that, but uh, hanging with the Gentiles was still taboo to them. But thank God, praise the Lord, that not everyone felt that way. There were some men, it says, some of them from the Jewish colonies in Cyprus and Cyrene, who were in Jerusalem at that time, they, when they went to Antioch, they started to reach out to the Greeks as well, the Gentiles, which are non-Jews. Okay? And this, this place is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it says that as they went there and started sharing the gospel, the Lord was with them. The Lord blessed their efforts to reach out with the gospel. Uh, Some of the scattered believers, it says they went to Phoenicia. This is that that long, uh, there's kind of a narrow strip of coastal territory there uh, with Tyre and Sidon, and and, uh, that's the Lebanon area. Uh, Some went there. This is where some other people went to the island of Cyprus just off the coast of Israel. Phoenicia, and then, uh, this is where some of the men were from, from Cyrene over here in North Africa, but they go from Jerusalem up here to Antioch, and this is where we're talking about. It's kind of like, I like to think of it as the armpit of Turkey. I'm not hope it doesn't smell like one or look like one, but no. Uh, this place was actually, uh, a cosmopolitan, uh, this place was happening back in the day. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but, uh, um, Antioch, this church at Antioch, becomes the focus because it is recorded as the first major church outside of Jerusalem. Throughout this book of Acts, we've pretty much stayed in Jerusalem for a long time, right? That's where the church is, and now it's it's spreading. And this becomes the first major church outside of Jerusalem. And it's amazing that God does such a great work here because this place was about as what we might call pagan as you could get. It was about as Gentile as you could get. Uh, there were about 16. There were 16 Antiochs in the ancient world, but this one was like the. This was the big one. This was the capital of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman Empire. It had over a half million residents. Uh, historians estimate it was called Antioch, Queen of the East, Antioch the Beautiful, Antioch the Great, and one man said that if uh, if Jerusalem was about religion, and Rome was about power, and Athens was about philosophy. Uh, Syrian Antioch was about business and immorality. Business and immorality, that was their thing. Uh, it was the place of pleasure and lust. This was a place people would retire, uh, they, would, they would go on vacation, and uh, basically what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. That's <laughs> the, the idea there. Okay, uh, This is going to become a prominent city in Acts and church history because after the apostles leave, uh, a seminary-like school starts up here. This is pretty neat to think about. A seminary-like school starts up here in Antioch, and this, this, this school becomes known for its literal interpretation of, of the Bible, just interpreting the Bible in its plain sense, believing in a future kingdom reign of Christ on the earth. So after the apostles leave, here's this school, and I think it's we we can tell how the apostles thought by the way we look at how this school taught. They had a literal method of interpretation. They interpret the Bible plainly, a historical, grammatical, contextual interpretation of God's word. Um, There was an early church father named Irenaeus who said, they interpreted the Bible that way, just plainly. And we can, we, can, we can date, trace premillennialism the idea of a future reign of Christ on earth, all the way back to this church where the apostles taught. It's pretty neat. Um, and that's contrary to the idea uh, that came out of Alexandria in the 4th century, which taught that the church was spiritual Israel and we were the kingdom of God on earth right now. Uh, that's uh, the spiritualizing method in contrast to the, the literal method. Premillennialism dominated the church's thinking for the first two centuries, at least. So, just something to be aware of. I think this is cool as far as it goes to, uh, history and how the church thought for the first two centuries. But just, I mean, try to picture this place. Try to picture it. Uh, its main street is four miles long it's paved with marble on both sides of this street there's big marble columns going up you know it's uh, it's it's lit up at night which was a pretty rare pretty rare thing for a city back then it's lit up at night so you could probably uh, you know have some Party all night long, basically. During the day, if you wanted to, uh, you relax in the spas, or you go and blow some money on chariot races. You ever heard of Ben Hur? Right, chariot races here. It sounds like this had a this place had a very modern, cosmopolitan type of feel, cutting edge type of feel. It reminds me of some of the the cities that spring up overnight. You guys have heard of Dubai, right? This place is when I when I when I study Antioch. I think of uh, a city just like Dubai, and I don't know if you know anything about Dubai, but just like it, this place is a worldwide melting pot of people and cultures and gods. I mean, it's an international community here from Greece and Syria, Phoenicia Jews, there's Arabs, there's Persians, there's Egyptians, there's Indians, and they're all here, and they all brought their beliefs with them, and they all brought their gods with them. And part of the problem, and why this place was so immoral, was because of uh, their gods. There was one in particular called Daphne, who had a temple five miles down the road, a pagan temple where ritual prostitution took place. Yeah, it was considered a religious activity to be involved in. Yeah, that's, that's how corrupt this was, that you could take religion and, and make immorality something holy. Okay, that's what was going on here. They had priestesses who acted out the story of Apollos and Daphne every night to the crowds. And, uh, Understanding this cultural context of this place makes God's choosing to move in this city, I think, even more amazing. It's even more amazing. God would choose this place to become this this great missionary hub for the church. And that tells us that there's no uh, nation and there's no city that's too dark or too far gone for the gospel where God just can't work because it's just too immoral or something like that. Uh, so this is very encouraging for us in the state of our culture. This becomes the basically the the mother church of Gentile Christianity, and it proves to be an important center for faith and theological development for centuries to come. One would think to be a Christian in this environment would be intimidating, but God is at work here, and we need to note some several principles here real quick. We'll move through. Uh, number one, God moves through persecution. This is something that Acts is teaching us over and over and over again. We think persecution is just the worst thing that could ever happen, and yes, it is evil. Yes, it is awful. We don't pray for it, but we need to note from this that God can use the evil of persecution for good. He used the persecution to scatter the gospel as the believers scattered, so they took the gospel with them, and other churches were being uh, started Other churches were being planted. And secondly, God's moving in a diverse culture and church. Now, diversity, what do we know about diversity? Diversity can often become a point of division. But this church is handling their diversity well. You've got nations from all over the world here. And they're handling the diversity well. They're, they're crossing ethnic and cultural barriers that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. God's reaching every tribe and tongue and nation with the gospel. And that's another principle for us. God moves through a, a barrier-crossing church. They're not letting the ethnic and cultural barriers get in the way right, of, of, of church unity. And we should, we should note here why they were able to be so unified with so much diversity around it's because they kept the gospel of Christ and His mission preeminent. They kept their focus on Christ and His gospel. And that's a key to unity in any church. Nothing stops God from moving when His people are focused on Christ and on the right things. And they don't get divided about the stained glass windows or the color of the carpet or whatever, the brand of coffee. Okay? We focus on the right things. And notice who he used in verse 20. Verse 20, how Luke describes them as some of them. Like, we don't even know these people. We don't know what their names were. We We don't know what they looked like. I mean, these are just some of them, right? Ordinary, day in, day out type of people. Ordinary people, nameless and faceless to us, but as they say, not before God. God moves through ordinary people. This shows us again in Acts, God is not just working through the the apostles, but he seeks in every member ministry. Basically, every member of the body has a part. Uh, Every believer is a minister who gives themselves to gospel advancement. These are regular people, just like you and me, speaking the good news. Speaking the good news, I like that. Because uh, these guys made a huge impact on Antioch, and it wasn't from a pulpit. They were just speaking forth the good news, it says, out in the marketplaces, out in the squares, out in the streets where people hang out. They're just sharing the gospel with people, telling people about what Jesus Christ did, how he gave himself so they could be forgiven. And it says here, I love this, the hand of the Lord is with them. Did you catch that? The hand of the Lord is with them. This is just a way of saying God's power was enabling them. It was God at work through them. The hand of the Lord being upon you can be a a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Now, in chapter 13, I was reading ahead this week, it's going to be a bad thing. The hand of the Lord comes upon a man who's trying to turn people away from the faith, and uh, he's struck with blindness. But here, the hand of the Lord being upon these people is a good thing, because it's God who is empowering them. He's the one who is enabling this church to grow numerically and spiritually. And this is one of the things, guys, that I pray for often here. I put it in our bulletin every now and then. I I pray that God would make it clear to us, in big ways and in little ways, that it's not just us here doing things in our own effort, but He's actually with us. He's leading us. He's coordinating us. He's, he's empowering us. His presence, His power is with us. I pray that the Lord's hand would be upon us. And uh, the reason why the, hands, the hand of the Lord is upon them is because they are dependent upon Him. They're dependent upon God's grace. God moves through a a grace-dependent church. A church that relies not on themselves, but on the power of God's grace. Grace is power. Grace is power sometimes, the way the Bible talks about it. And that's the only way that we'll ever be successful or effective in ministry. We need to know that. If ministry is done in our power, we serve in our own power, it's going to lead to fruitlessness. I don't care how busy we are, nothing of eternal worth is going to get done for the Lord. We're we'll fruitless, no matter how, how big or how small our church is. Uh, but if if ministry is done in His power, and we're prayerfully depending on Him, it's going to make the ministry eternally fruitful, regardless of the size. Regardless. Why is that? Because like Jesus said, apart from Him, we can do Nothing. We can't do anything apart from Him. My pastor friend in Kansas uh, texted me this morning. He's the one waiting on a heart transplant still. But uh, he texted me an encouragement every Sunday morning. And this is kind of funny. He didn't know what I was preaching on or anything. But he said this in relation to prayer. He said, as we move heaven through our prayers, we're, like we're depending on God, as we move heaven, this is what he said, God moves on earth. I thought that was pretty neat. As we move heaven, as we depend on him, God moves on earth, in us and through us. And so, anyway, the Lord is so moving and growing this church in Antioch that the news of it, it says, reaches the ears of Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem. And they want to verify it. (laughs) No doubt they still have some concerns about the Gentile expansion. They want to know what's going on. And so they send... Uh, Barnabas, whom we've encountered a few times in Acts already. And uh, that seems pretty strategic. Uh, I don't know why the apostles didn't go, but they send Barnabas, which seems strategic because Barnabas is from Cyprus, and they're Cyprians here. So uh, look at verse 23. We'll move on. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Isn't that neat? Who's Saul, by the way? We call him the Apostle Paul, right? But Barnabas goes and he he visits Antioch. And what does he see? It says he sees the grace of God at work. How cool is that? The grace of God is at work. Now, grace, God's grace is obviously invisible, but he can still tell that God is working here by the way people are being saved and they're, they're hungry for the word of God. They want to know more. They want to grow. God is moving here, and, and, it, and maybe His grace is amplified in His mind by the fact that uh, these, these Gentiles, basically, they know nothing about the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, the Old Testament, all that stuff. They don't, they don't know Jewish traditions. They're not going through any Jewish rituals, and, and God is working among them. I mean, think of how strange that would be for a Jew to see Okay. These guys probably didn't have a clue what was in the Law of Moses. They don't dress like Jews. They don't talk like Jews. They they haven't they don't have refined Jewish mannerisms. I mean, but here they are, saved by the complete grace of God. And uh, Barnabas, I love this man, He's a man of grace. He doesn't let the strange Gentile. Newborn believers with all of their differences get in the way. He says, God is at work here. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they look like. These people are believers, and uh, he encourages them. He lives up to his name. Remember what his name means? Son of encouragement. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He lives up to his name. It literally says he encourages these new believers to remain true to the Lord. He encourages them to remain true to the Lord. That's a fitting encouragement in a pluralistic city like Antioch, where you've got all of these false gods and the immorality is rampant. He's saying, remain true to the Lord. He encouraged them to surrender their lives to Christ. You've believed, now surrender. Everybody needs to have that moment where they believe, they trust in Christ, and then they have that moment when they say, you know what, Lord, my life is not my own. You died for me, and I'm going to, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I'm going to offer my life as a living sacrifice. I'm going to learn your ways. I'm going to start to live for you now because you died for me. I think that's what Barnabas is doing here. He sees the culture that they're in. He sees the culture and beliefs they came out of, and he's encouraging them. Remain true to the Lord. And uh, it's a good principle, because that's how God is going to continue to move through this church. It's through a surrendered church. God moves through a surrendered church. People who are are dedicated to Christ, people who have a single-minded, firm resolve to follow Christ, people who have a real heart devotion to, to Him. It's not just religion. It's not just going to church. It's, I mean, they really are obedient to the Lord. Like, they really love the Lord. They want to serve the Lord. They want to give their lives to the Lord and be used for Him. They want the hand of the Lord to be upon them. And uh, it appears that they responded well to His encouragement because people start to identify these disciples by a new name. Christians. This is this is where the term Christian started. That's what Luke tells us. And uh it was originally coined here and it appears that it wasn't self-designated. It it, it appears that outsiders identified this them this way because of what they believed they, and what they how they lived. I mean, they all they talked about was Christ and they they lived like Christ. They were comp- different from the world. It's pretty neat. Um, there's varied opinions over the proper way to define the term Christian, uh, to translate it. But overall, the, it just has the idea of just belonging to the party of Christ. Christians, they, these are people who belong to Christ. They're Christ followers. They're Christ people. Christ ones, you could say. They preach Christ and they imitated Christ. And he, think about that. Christ is what they've become known for. Isn't that something? Like, Christ has become their identity. And I want to ask us this morning, has He become our identity? When people look at us, do they see Christ? Are we talking about Christ? Are we sharing Christ? Are we modeling Christ? Because that's where the term Christian comes from. It doesn't come from someone who goes to a certain church somewhere. It comes from the fact that these people talk about Him and they live like Him. So they become identified with him, and God's going to move through a people who know their identity is in Christ, and, and, and it's not based on what they do, where they come from, that sort of thing. The, the reason why we need to emphasize this, and, I, and I've emphasized it over and over in my few years here, uh, the reason I say this is because those who put their identity, if you put your identity in in your work, I mean, what's the first person we ask someone when we, when we meet them, other than what's your name? We say, Oh, what do you do for a living? You know why? Because we put so much emphasis on what we do. That's where our identity's found, right? I'm a farmer or I'm a, I don't know, I'm a nurse or whatever. Um, if we put our identity in something like that or we put our identity in who we are, in our family, maybe I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm, if we put our identity in our stuff, you know, this is my truck is what makes me who I am, part of what makes me who I am, you know? If you put your identity in those things that are temporal, you are less likely to follow Christ. Because when you follow Christ, those things are something that you might lose. Just like these Christians here, they were persecuted. So if if my identity is in my stuff, and then all of a sudden I'm scattered and I lose all of it, I lose my money, I lose my house, whatever, my job, boy, I'm really going to be down in the dumps, aren't I? Not that that won't happen anyway, but if I if, if that's where my identity is, I'm going to be really depressed. I'm going to have some real mental angst. Uh, like Barnabas and Saul, think about this. You might be called to leave what used to be your identity. You might be called to leave your home. You might be called to leave a certain job. So you can't have your identity in it, or else you won't be wholly, full, fully and wholeheartedly Following Christ, because you're living for the world, not for Him. Putting our identity in these fleeting things, again, it causes so much mental and emotional angst in us. Um, We've got to learn to hold those things loosely, who we are, what we do, what we have. It's crucial, too, think about this, in, in the church, or even in a local church like in Antioch, that's maybe made up of several nationalities and cultures, to see each other as being in Christ. So when we look at each other, we don't see first uh, an American, a Nebraskan, a, a farmer, a rancher, whatever. We see them as people who are in Christ. We see each other as in Christ, right? Before anything else, before race, before gender, before social status, before nationality, we're Christians. We're all in Christ, and we're part of the same body. Another key to unity, anyway, that's what that is. And new Christians, notice in verse 25, they need what? Training and instruction. Training and instruction. They needed to get grounded in God's Word. Grounded in God's Word, especially in those first few years as a believer. God moves and speaks through His Word, doesn't He? God moves through Bible teaching. That's on the next slide. Some of the, some, sometimes the importance of teaching is downplayed in churches. But we need to remember that without roots in God's Word, right, there is no fruit, or the fruit's going to be rotten. A church that doesn't pay attention to God's Word isn't going to be operating according to His Word, which means God's not going to be satisfied. With how they're operating, they'll they'll lose the gospel. They'll lose. They'll they will lose they they will not understand how to operate in Christ, and so um, it's important that we get into the Word. We get grounded in a pluralistic world. Well, there's all sorts of different stuff out there. We need to know what God's Word says so that we aren't blown to and fro, and, and we know how to operate correctly before God. And uh, Barnabas, look at this. He when he goes to cheat, teach, he knows he can't do this on his own, and so he makes a short jaunt over to Tarsus that's over in eastern Turkey and he goes and he gets Paul and they give themselves to discipleship and instruction in this church for a complete year. For an entire year it says they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. So for a whole year, how would you love to be taught by Paul and Barnabas? Wouldn't that be great? I'd love to be discipled by Paul or Barnabas. I don't know about you. Uh, but here's what, here, I found a neat quote by Warren Wearsby this week. He says, When when the saints are grounded in the word, they will have a strong witness to the lost, and there will be balance in the church between edification and evangelism. Worship and witness, teaching and testifying. That's a good, balanced balanced church. All right, let's look at the last part here, this last paragraph. Verse 27 Now at the same time, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem. And you're going north, so that's kind of weird, right? Came down from Jerusalem. That's talking topographically, because you go up from Jerusalem. Anytime you go to Jerusalem, you're going up in elevation. So they're actually heading down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine All over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And uh, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders, to the elders in Jerusalem. So we see lastly here the Gentile reciprocity reciprocity. What do you think of when you, when you think of reciprocity? I think of a reciprocating saw, going back and forth, right? So, so, so the, the, the Jews take the gospel, to the Gentiles, the Gentiles send monetary support. There's reciprocity there. Uh, and some false, or, not false prophets, but some prophets, they come down from Jerusalem, and one of them named Agabus prophesies that a great famine is coming on the whole empire, and the Jerusalem Church is really going to feel this thing because it's undergone persecution, and they already don't have a whole lot at this point. And, and And it looks like, according to the historians, that it just hit that Judea area uh, hard in particular. And ancient historians like Josephus they record several several severe famines across the empire. I mean, from North Africa to Italy to to Turkey, to Israel during this time between 44 and 49 A.D., which was during Claudius' reign. So um, that's pretty neat, uh, the the history that we have here. And uh, this is the first mention, by the way, of prophets in the New Testament. First mention of prophets in the New Testament. And like uh, like tongues and knowledge and prophecy, these these spiritual gifts... These were revelatory gifts that Paul said would cease in 1 Corinthians 13.8. But at this time, it was a much-needed gift. Prophecy was a needed gift because the revelation of the New Testament was still being written, right? They didn't have the New Testament, and so they needed these these gifts. And uh, there's a lot of people myself included, who, <laughs> we really want to see these gifts, right, in, in action today, like prophecy, like healing, like tongues. I, I think it would be cool to see these things in action. Um, if if, the, if they, they really were, you'd probably see them all over the news and on YouTube. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, genuine bona fide ones. But I think, uh, just like you, I want to see these things in action today. But I think the New Testament explains why we don't see genuine, Indisputable bona fide works of the Spirit like this that we're seeing in Acts all the time because, uh, as Ephesians 2 20 puts it, these men were appointed by God to this office of apostle or prophet. Okay, they're appointed by God to that office for the purpose of laying the foundation for the church. And how many times do you lay a foundation? Once, yeah. And then the Bible says, We are now building on. The foundation that they laid and so they wrote the scriptures and now we share what they they taught okay so um you guys we have to remember acts as a transitional book and uh what was taking place here was a massive absolutely massive transition in god's program you have the gospel that that's being shared and you have the, the birth of the church, this Jew and Gentile mix. You've got the New Testament that's being written, new scriptures being written, and, and God's affirming this massive shift and revelation that, that God is giving. He's affirming it with signs and wonders. And that's the purpose for the miracles. Now, the New Testament tells us it's not by sight, but it's by what that we live? It's by faith. Faith becomes the chief characteristic and and emphasis of the church age. Faith in God's promises. Faith in in Christ. Faith in the eschatological hope of Christ's return. Thy kingdom come. Christ come, right? Our Lord come. It's by faith now, not by sight. Those who claim fresh revelations today, I want to warn you guys, Be suspect. Be very suspect. Okay? Because a lot of these guys probably only want power or they want money, uh, especially if they're on TV. Uh, And uh, they're always suspect. It seems like their prophecies are always ambiguous. They're always questionable. Or they're even dangerous because they're opposed to God's written revelation. This is the only revelation that we need today. We'll be looking for fresh revelation, the revelation of God's word. Is sufficient in Isaiah even Isaiah says in 8 chapter 8 verse 20 says if if someone doesn't speak according to this standard this this book it is because they have no dawn they don't really have God with them they don't have the light so be aware of false prophets out there stick to the Word of God the the point of prophecy here we notice this too is it's not to satisfy curiosity It's actually to stir these people up to service in this context. He shares the prophecy so that they can send relief for the church in Jerusalem, which teaches us today uh, the the reciprocation between Jew and Gentile and how God has brought about this incredible reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Not, Not just in word, but also in deed. So, this indicates the ethnic and cultural barriers have officially been crossed. You know, we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. God's removing the barrier. Well, here it is. The real thing, like, the, the barrier has been crossed. The church is still one, despite being Jew and Gentile and being in different places. This is really cool. Uh, we've got our, uh, one of our last principles here. God moves through a generous church. He moves through a generous church. I think we have to take home from this that God moves through a generous church, a church that is self-focused and only invests in itself. It's going to stagnate. It's going to stagnate. That's why the Dead Sea is dead, because it takes in all the time, but it doesn't put anything out. It doesn't have any outlets. And so it's dead, and there's nothing can live there. But the Sea of Galilee, it's full of life. Because it has inlet, but it also has an outlet. And so fresh water and oxygen is always moving through it. So I always think of those. I don't know why. Uh, when I think of a church, as far as w- outreach, we always want to have outreach. We want to have an emphasis on the mission and outreach always. Um, and we should also consider our brethren around the world suffering hardship and persecution. Right? Right? Consider some of our brothers who are going through hardship and persecution and uh, be thinking about how we can support them um, this last verse though here show, it shows us these 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 believers they put their money where their mouth is they took up a collection and they followed through on it and Titus tells us this is one of the ways that uh, we 're going to be fruitful it 's through good deeds like this being generous good deeds one of the one of the terms too in the last sentence that Uh, is of interest is that the last word elders. That's interesting because that's the first time that this word is used for the church in relation to the church. Now, the word elders has come up in the book of Acts so far referring to the, the elders and the chief priests, the Jews who were persecuting the church and who rejected Christ. But now we see that the church has elders showing us that the church is becoming increasingly complex as it grows, and authority is being transferred from the apostles to appointed elders, pastor, shepherd, teachers, that sort of thing. So overseers. Uh, when wherever Paul went, remember he when he whenever he established churches or encountered churches, uh, he was always looking for mature and faithful, qualified men to lead that church. Remember he, he's sailing to Rome. He stops by on the island of Crete, a little further west of Cyprus, out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And he, he's only there for a short time and he, he sees that there's all these believers there, all these churches, but they don't have leaders appointed. And so he sends Titus in, Titus chapter one verse five, to go and appoint leaders. Every church needs a solid, faithful, mature, qualified leaders uh, who lead by example with love for the saints, protecting, providing, and caring for the church. I mean, that's the last principle I've got here. God moves through shared godly leadership. Shared godly leadership. Uh, Barnabas, he, he knew he couldn't do it on his own. Um, and he goes and gets Paul. And no doubt, while they're there, they're looking for mature men who can take over when they leave. But, uh, in sum, this passage reveals another key church community where God is working. Not just in Jerusalem anymore. There's another key church up in Antioch, and it shows us that nothing stops God from moving when His people are focused on Christ, and they're focused on His Word, and they're focused on His mission to disciples. Um, God has powerfully at work through this. This is a church, I think, that has deep roots in the Word of God, Is this church perfect? No. But they have a real desire to follow Christ, a genuine heart commitment to the Lord.